If you were not with us last week, Amanda gave, preached from the perspective of the younger son. Today I preached from the perspective of the older son, and next week Bob will bring it all together as, from the perspective of the father. Um, and so we will turn today to that of the older son. And last week you heard, if you were here, the story of an ungrateful son who thinking only of himself, requested the inheritance his father had set aside for him right now. Not sometime in the future, not in the day when his father had died, but right now. Amanda pointed out in her sermon last week, that's just not something that many people do these days. And honestly, it wasn't something that happened often during Jesus' day either. So when the hearers, the crowd that Jesus was speaking to heard this, They were rightfully shocked. How dare some young man ask his father for his inheritance early? It's like the young son said to his father, Your money, the things that you own, are more important to me than you. It's as if you were dead to me, or as if I wanted you dead so that I could go ahead and have the things that are coming to me. Clearly, this younger son was misguided. His lack of respect surely brought shame on his father, his family, and ultimately, as the story goes, on himself as well. It's only when he has spent his inheritance, he is now broke, and famine strikes the foreign land he finds himself in, and as a Jew, he is there with the pigs, which is just an abomination to the Jews, feeding them the pods that the pigs would eat, and he looks at it and says, I wish I could just eat this. Does he realize his situation and his error? For possibly the first time, the younger son finds humility and decides to return to his father and ask for a job as one of his servants, if for no other reason than his stomach is empty and he knows that his servants, his father's servants, are well fed. But what he finds is a loving father A forgiving father who, with joy and compassion, runs to him and celebrates his son's return by restoring his his name as a son, his identity as a son. He puts a ring on his finger, a cloak on his back, and throws him a party for the ages. An unexpected gift of compassion and grace in the face of arrogance and selfishness. That is the younger son's story. But today we focus on another son, the older son. He's also the older brother, for he commands a significant place in Jesus' parable too. All right, who here among us is an oldest child? Can you raise your hand? All right. Andrew, there's one in the choir. I'm an oldest child too, so about a third of the congregation are oldest children. And I find myself identifying with the older brother in the story. Now, I'm three years older than my sisters, who are also twins. As we grew up together, our relationship reflected a pretty typical kind of relationship between an older brother and younger siblings or sisters. You know, we played together a lot, but I was always in charge. I set the rules. This is the games we're going to play, and this is how we're going to do it. And then as we got older, out of the goodness of my heart... I share with them the deep wisdom that I had gained from those extra three years that I had on them, because I knew so much more. 
I was proud of my place in my family. And they, they had so much they could learn from a wise and benevolent older brother. I don't know if they would say the same thing. But as younger children often do, they had their ways of getting at me too. They liked to tattle on the littlest things like, oh, you looked at me the wrong way. My brother pushed me or did this or that. And they got privileges at a younger age than I did. They got to stay up later at an earlier age than I did. They got to see TV shows or maybe movies that I couldn't have seen at their age. They got to go out with friends earlier and easier than I did. But if you're not the oldest sibling, I don't want to leave you out. So I have another question that Miss Amanda asked earlier, but I don't know if I saw a full participation from our congregation. I'll ask it again. When have you ever uttered, oh, no, I shouldn't say when, have you ever uttered the words, it's not fair? You really should be probably everybody at one point in your life have probably said, it's not fair. So welcome to the club. You too can probably find some identification, something in common with the older brother. Now, I often said those words in reaction to what my sisters did to me. It seemed they could get away with murder. So as we return to the story of the prodigal son, might we find the older brother feeling the same way? Let's begin by recalling the setting once again. Jesus has a crowd around him. And so he has their attention, and he's teaching them, and he's going to tell them some short stories. In the crowd, we find Jesus' disciples. We find tax collectors, sinners, Pharisees, and teachers of the law. Now, everyone in the crowd shares a Jewish identity, and to varying degrees, they understand their religious and social expectations. But not everyone named is going to be treated with equal respect. Now, the disciples are mostly common folk. They don't have any kind of special recognition. There is one who's a tax collector, but that's not a good thing. And those are the kind of people that the Pharisees and the teachers of the law are so offended by. Those are the kind of people among them who have blatantly broken the social and religious rules and have, as such, been cast outside the bounds of acceptability. Many of these sins were understood to be the kind that fracture the bond of the Jewish community. The tax collectors, for example, they worked for the occupying Roman Empire. They were known for taking advantage of the Jewish citizens who were stuck playing, paying tribute to an occupying empire that they certainly didn't want. Likewise, Dr. Amy Jill Levine, who is a New Testament professor and scholar, says that in a first century Jewish context, Sinners were people who freed themselves from the common welfare of the community. They only looked out for themselves rather than everyone else in the community. So these are the kind of people who would do whatever it took to look out for number one, even if that meant stepping on top of other people to get what they needed or perceived they wanted. These are the sinners and tax collectors who are found gathering around Jesus to listen to his lessons and his stories. They find welcome from Jesus in a way that the Pharisees and legal experts were unwilling to offer them. In fact, such a welcome results in the grumbling and disapproval of Jesus' actions. The contemporary English version of our Bible 
puts it this way. He is friendly with sinners, and he even eats with them. Knowing that in some way or another, all the parties involved in this setting are a little uneasy with each other's company, and in this welcome of all of them, Jesus sets about telling some stories, kind of calling out the situation that no one else is speaking about. The first two stories reflect the length that God will go to find what is missing and then return it to its rightful place. Story of the lost sheep, story of the lost coin. The third is a little different, and as we find, a little different from the first two. And there we find a permissive and but benevolent father who, instead of going and finding, he waits patiently for his sons to recognize and graciously receive what was all along theirs to begin with. But before we go any further with the older son, let's acknowledge another group that is present in this crowd, listening to Jesus' story. Amanda introduced us to them last week as well. They are the first century community made up largely of Gentile Christians to whom Luke is writing to. Now Gentiles would have heard these stories and found themselves probably in the parables in a unique kind of way. Perhaps they identified with the sinners and the, that the Pharisees so disdained. Maybe they found hope in the homecoming of the lost sheep and the lost coin, the wayward son. In addition to Luke's audience, and I've started to point this out already, the parables are set in a Jewish context. So there is obvious tension between the Jewish setting of the stories being told, the Gentile retelling of these stories, and finally, our interpretation of the same text some 2,000 years later. So with this in mind, let's keep these questions near to us as we journey together through this story. Here's some of the questions you want to keep in mind. Where do we find ourselves in this parable? How do the scriptures challenge us to be more faithfully present to God's work in our lives? How do our actions and words encourage those outside God's reign to embrace a God of love and mercy? And who are the sinners and tax collectors among us that we find too offensive to welcome? A traditional interpretation of Luke 15 identifies the sinners and tax collectors allegorically in the place of the younger son. No matter the circumstances surrounding their status, whether it was due to their poor choices or because of situations outside of their control, the father's unconditional welcome home gave, hope, gave them hope that in Jesus there was opportunity for redemption, that they were valued. The younger son's story was also told for the benefit of the Pharisees and the legal experts. Like it or not, what Jesus wanted them to hear is that change can occur in anyone's life. Mistakes and status do not have to define you forever. And identity as a son or daughter in the end brings about redemption that rule keeping just can never do. And so it's to that line of thinking that Jesus turns in his story to the older son. The good son, so we are 
led to believe. The loyal son who, until verse 25, is hidden from the scene. And when we find him, we realize he has been working in the fields. What will one day be his fields, since his younger brother has taken hold of his part of the inheritance and sold it for the promise of adventure in a faraway land? We might imagine the frustration and disappointment the older brother feels feels towards his younger brother. He may have gone over in his mind thoughts like this. You know, he cared more about himself than his family. He never was a hard worker. His mind was always in the clouds. He was always dad's favorite. Well, look where he got him. I know how to make dad proud. And if our family is to avoid complete shame, it's now up to me and my hard work. Such thoughts are just conjecture, but you get the sense that there was some real fracture beginning to show itself between the two brothers in this story. Now, in Jesus' culture, also as in ours, land ownership is a sign of stability and security. Still today, home ownership is one of the surest ways to ensure prosperity. Now, according to research done by my former New Testament, Testament professor, Dr. Richard Vinson, land was something to protect and keep intact. If for no other reason, then it could be passed down to your children, and then your children's to their children, and so forth. Now, there is this thing called the Mishnah, which is Jewish case law that was recorded sometime after Jesus, not too long after Jesus, and it works off earlier traditions. So it's probably safe to say that it reflects the legal thinking during Jesus' day. And in it, it describes how land ownership between father and son would have worked. And interestingly enough, it makes room for an early inheritance of a son from his father. Here's what the Mishnah says about land inheritance. First, as you might expect, the eldest son is supposed to receive a double share of the family inheritance. So in our story, the older brother will receive two-thirds of his father's estate, while his younger brother has already made off with his one-third. The father could choose to sell his estate at any, at any time. But when he died, his inheritance, inheritors, his sons, would have the chance to buy it back, if they could afford to. The father could also choose to assign ownership of his property to his sons before he died. So I suppose his younger sons or the sons could ask for it early too. And if he chose to go this route, he still would be able to maintain the rights to use his property as he saw fit until he died. So if then, if the father has assigned ownership of the property to his sons, before he died, and the sons then choose to sell their share, the buyer of that property could not take possession of it until after the father's death. Until his death, the father had the right to plant, to harvest, and in all ways maintain himself through his property. It is likely then that the younger brother sold his share of the property and left to have a good time with the prophets. The older brother, out of loyalty to his father, remains behind, working the land that will one day be his 
and the land that was sold that will one day be lost to the family unless he is able to redeem it. The father maintains his stability even as his legacy has taken a severe blow. And it is in those valuable fields we find the older brother while the party reaches its full swing. And it's puzzled me. I've wondered when I've read this parable, why didn't the father make sure that the older son was a part of the the party, was maybe the first person involved? Why didn't he go out and tell his son the good news? Perhaps this is evidence of a deeper rift in the family than we first perceived. Such an omission only seems to heighten the alienation and hurt that the older brother must feel. Hearing music, laughter, and celebration coming from his father's house, he recognizes that something big is going on. And so he seeks out someone to, and finds out to find out what's going on. He finds a servant on his way out of the fields and asks that question. And the servant's answer is straightforward and honest. Your brother has come, and your father has killed the fatted calf because your younger brother is back safe and sound. Have you ever been out in public and witnessed a full-on temper tantrum? It doesn't have to be a young child that does it. I've seen adults do the same thing. An adult or child begins to raise their voice so that everyone else can hear their displeasure. He or she might stomp their feet at someone or bang something, bang a table. Raise their voice to let everyone around them know that they have been treated unjustly, that something is amiss. They have not been treated fairly. It's a bit uncomfortable to be around. Well, Luke here gives a sense that this is just the way the older brother is reacting to the news. It's not one of joy, of excitement, or even relief. He's upset. His actions have nothing to do with his younger brother at all, but speak to the truth of how he has felt this whole time toward the situation, toward his father's decisions and his brother's actions. The family rift is about to get exposed. His fit must have caught the attention of his father, so his father goes out to find him. Somewhat like when he went out to find his younger son, but it doesn't give any details. We don't know if he ran to his older son. There are no details, no fanfare. He just goes out to meet his son. And it is here that the older brother lists his grievances to his father. And now here's where we notice the change of place between the younger son and the older son. And it's striking. If you recall, the younger son comes to his senses in the pigsty, and he longs to simply be near his father as one of his servants. But the older son, now set to inherit everything that's left that his father has, he only sees himself as his father's slave. This assertion is a gross exaggeration. Because if he was really a slave, he wouldn't be speaking to the owner of the state like he is. And he really wouldn't have the choice of going into the house or not. He would have to be in that house. 
having killed the fatty calf and now preparing it and making ready for the celebration. I'm sure if his father's servants overheard this comment, they would have taken issue with his older son's claim too. The older son continues his grievances, making exaggerated claims about never receiving a party with my friends. I wonder, given the small communities in rural Israel, it's probably likely that his friends are already at the party, already inside the celebration. You see, this party is for everyone who is willing to accept it and willing to go celebrate the older son also makes specific accusations of how his younger brother squandered his inheritance. Jesus never really tells us what his brother did while away in that foreign land. He just describes it as wild living. Now we can imagine what that wild living was like. And so must his older brother. Day after day, working in his father's fields... From his frustration, it is now becoming clear that the only difference between these two brothers is that the younger had the guts to ask his father for the opportunity to leave and sow his wild oats. Perhaps this accusation comes from stories that the younger brother or the older brother may have heard of what happens over there in those foreign lands when someone goes. Or maybe they were even what the older brother was thinking, that's what I would have done had he taken the same opportunity. Notice, too, how the older son distances himself from his family when he addresses his father. He is no longer a son, but a slave. And his wayward younger brother is no longer his brother, but his father's son. His inability to claim verbally his place in the family reflects where his heart has been all along. It's clear now that this older brother is hardly someone of virtue that we should admire, but is rather a sad soul drifting further and further from his family. In a heartbreaking turn of events, the father finds that another of his sons is far off, lost in his self-righteousness and his, and is his contempt for his brother and his father. Just as the father has restored his family upon the homecoming of his younger son, the older son wants to pull it all apart again. The father's response to his son is to remind him that everything that he has is also his. Son, you have been with me all this time. Your status, your safety, they were never in doubt. Why dwell on this anthill, he seems to say, when there is a mountain of celebration to be had? This brother of yours, your brother, we thought he was gone. We thought he's gone for good, but he has come home. He has been found. Let's celebrate. Come inside. Join the party. So what do you think? Upon walking in the shoes of the older brother, what do you think? Does he have a point? Has he been ignored and underappreciated? Or is it that the older brother just can't share his father's affection unless he thinks it is deserved. It makes me wonder if the older brother has ever experienced grace. Gracious love can only be received as a gift. It can never be earned. 
Does the older brother really believe that the only way to his father's love is by earning it? Now, if the father's love is earned by good actions, well, then he has cause to be angry. But if he and his younger brother are loved by their father simply by being his sons, there is nothing they can, can or cannot do to earn or disqualify themselves of his love for them. This misreading of his father's love is what makes the older son a prodigal too. So I wonder if the Pharisees see themselves in this story. Do the teachers of the law understand that their grumbling about Jesus' welcome to the sinners is the same as the older brother's disapproval? As Jesus draws closer to Jerusalem, it seems that the answer is no. We, on this side of the cross, we might find ourselves shaking our heads at these characters. Why couldn't they understand and embrace Jesus' message of restoration and reconciliation for all creation? But before we get too haughty in what we think we would do, we better ask ourselves those same kind of questions. When have we been slow to embrace the good news of restoration for all people? When have we, like the older brother, in the face of God's graciousness, shouted, but they don't deserve it. They haven't earned it. It's not fair. Where, in our own day, have we as Christ followers been smug about the others? What keeps us from celebrating Christ's welcome for anyone who is drawn to his love? Furthermore, what keeps us from extending welcome to those who do, not like, who do not act like us or look like us, yet are created in God's image? The implications of Jesus' welcome of sinners have far-reaching implications and consequences for those captured by his winsome love and scandalized by it, too. Luke 15 is a hopeful story of redemption for those who find themselves among the fallen and broken of society. But it also reminds us that even those who follow Christ can sometimes measure themselves against others based on their perceived righteousness instead of celebrating God's steadfast love for all God's creation. So the parable ends with the younger son feasting with his friends and neighbors on the fatted calf, dancing and celebrating. But it also ends with the father and the older son outside the party at a stalemate. What will become of the family? Will the elder son dutifully but begrudgingly come to the party? Will he ever see his life as a gift to receive or will it simply be a list of tasks to achieve? Will he and his brothers ever reconcile? And when the father dies, what then? Will the older ever be able to extend the kind of love and care to his younger brother that his father once did? Will he ever get in on the joy of giving and receiving instead of simply earning? These are questions I hope we all carry with us 
today. So today, in the hearing of the Scripture, and in the living of our lives this week, may we never forget that God's love, found in the person of Jesus Christ, and shared with us in the gift of the Holy Spirit, is never something we can earn. It's just something that God freely offers to all of His creation. Are we willing to graciously accept it? Such a question calls us to a time of response. As Philip comes, as we open our hymnals, how will you respond to these questions? Perhaps you need to ask God to help you see God's love and grace in other people and in yourself. Perhaps for the first time you want to acknowledge publicly that God, through Jesus Christ, is your Savior and Lord. Maybe you want to join with a congregation like Huguenot Road Baptist Church where you can practice God's love and grow in God's love and share God's love with others. In whatever way God may be working in your life, whether at your seat or coming forward to pray with one of our pastors, we invite you to respond to God's call.